0: Okay, so as you know, I strive for accuracy. So before we get started, I need to issue a correction to the last episode that I made. So on episode 25, when I was talking about the B-25 Mitchell bomber, which is a World War II bomber, the co-host asked me if the passenger sat close to the crew. And I guessed, just purely guessed that they did. They did not. So that statement was false. A listener, David Robinson, pointed out to me that, Old John Feather Merchant, the B-25 in question, was outfitted as a VIP transport where the VIP cabin would have been fitted into the aft part of the aircraft called the waist. It sits in the rear of the fuselage, back behind the wings where the cockpit is up front. And this means that to get to and from the cockpit, there's a very small crawl space that passes over the bomb bay, the wing spar, and a fuel tank. And he pointed out, due to the design of the aircraft, the passenger would not have direct line of sight with the pilots or the cockpit. There's my correction. I strive for accuracy. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution.
1: Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash.
0: Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm. Increase climb. But only if you really need me to.
1: Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree, and went night night.
0: Fifty. Forty. Oh,
1: so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. 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 Thirty. Twenty. I'm sorry. I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. Ten. Hence being poked in the. The rear uh as a man in the middle of the aisle climb now given the context that you've given me this does not sound like a good plan clear of conflict welcome
0: back to the aviation history podcast together with my co-host we are going to look at events in aviation history like air disasters accidents incidents and mere mishaps along with the occasional mystery Aviation history is worth remembering, but it's worth remembering accurately, so I'm here to tell you the stories. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator. And if you want to see pictures of the events we talk about and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at AluminumTube. You can even email me your ideas at AluminumTubePodcast.com or go to AluminumTubePodcast.com. Or if you're a Brit and you have trouble spelling aluminum <laughs> you can go to <laughs> altubepodcast.com where you can join my patreon tip me get decals meet the co-hosts listen to episodes all right there in the browser yeah, aluminium, right?
1: Exactly. And you can realize the impact of your story <laughs> yeah. with an
0: S. <laughs> <laughs> big thanks to, I'd like to um, just give a big thanks to JustCast.com and CastPy.com for making all of that website stuff so easy. If you're a podcaster, you can get this for free on your podcast in just a matter of minutes at CastPy.com. It's really great for podcasters. That is not a paid advertisement. I use it and I know the guy who runs it, and it is a fantastic product. So, anyway, my co host is Kent Sarf. It has been two years since we recorded Last Kent. It's been a while. Update us. What has changed? I know a lot has changed with me,
1: but I have updated everybody as kind of I went along. So tell us what's up with you. Yeah. So in the last couple of years, boy, I mean, the last couple of years have been absolutely uh, crazy insane, oh, uh, yeah. uh, doing a whole lot less traveling, at least for the time being, but did get to go to some fun places. Is that, do you like that? I mean, is that nicer? Is that like, you, you You really prefer to travel, don't you? Uh I do like to travel. I love to experience places. I like to experience people uh, by getting to know them, where they live, where they do, uh, where they do their thing. And, right. And um, I mean, to me, travel is context. It's it's context on the entire human experience. Oh yeah. So you know, it's great when business takes me all kinds of different places. It's certainly been doing a whole lot less of that. But uh, now that we're uh, hopefully coming off the tail end of the pandemic, uh, looking forward to getting back into travel. And then professionally, uh, I have had the opportunity to take uh, the work I've done in the cloud uh, and make that real for space and spacecraft customers. So helping customers who fly satellites and missions to like the moon. And And we're getting more of that and more and more. Like there's more customers and
0: more base and stuff like that for, I mean, space, it's... It's the next thing for real. Yeah. Oh oh definitely. So very, very exciting. That's that's awesome. I'm I'm glad to hear that and I know that you your role changed a little bit, which is cool. The reason why you're here is I wrote this for you because I know that you are gonna dig this. This is a really <laughs> to it. This is a really interesting one. You're you're really gonna dig it. So and, and you keep everything so secret that it's always uh, you always get a fresh response. Well, I definitely don't want to reveal the story. You know, <laughs> I I, I want to make sure that I get real genuine emotion from you. So, so. our our dear listeners, uh, you will be as excited and surprised as I am. <laughs> so um, I did want to say that I'm I, I didn't tell you actually I'm gonna be on the uh, I'm gonna be on the. History Channel. I made a guest appearance on History's Greatest Mysteries talking about, I'm not going to reveal it, but an airplane issue. Make a guest appearance that'll be on this season. So it's with, uh, it's History's Greatest Mysteries with Lewis Fishburne. So, you know, give it a watch if you want to see me. Very cool. So you've been on the podcast before, so you know how things run. Interrupt me with your questions interject because this is how we all learn. And this is going to be a fun one. Are you ready to talk airplanes? Buckle in. So we'll start with the airplane, right? So we've talked about this airplane before, but it's been way back in episode 13. And I publish about once a month. And this is episode 26. So it's been like a little more than a year since we talked about this airplane. So it's history on history yes you have most definitely ridden on one of these oh yeah you know it's funny because you said that you've flown so many miles you've probably flown nearly as many miles as i have i was like whoa holy crap he's flown a lot of miles so you have experience and i actually am not sure i've ever even ridden on one of these airplanes even though they're pretty prolific yeah they're pretty common yeah yeah. so it's the airbus a330 and you're familiar with it i'm sure twin engine wide-bodied twin aisle absolutely And for our listeners, there's a picture on Instagram at Aluminum Tube. So the A330, like you said, is a large, long-range, twin-engine. That means one engine under each wing. Wide body, which means two aisles. Some people get to sit near the windows. Some people get to sit in the center. But in the A330, the coach configuration is two seats near the window, and then four seats in the middle, and then two seats on the other side, and an aisle between each. Yeah, pretty common. Yeah, so the history of the Airbus is the A330 was built... In Well, it's built by Airbus, which is in France. Starting in the mid-70s, Airbus used its first airliner called the A300 as a conceptual platform for later designs. The A330-300 took its maiden flight in 1992 and entered service in January of 1994. Airbus then launched a smaller tubed variant in 1998. The A33200. It holds less people, but it goes a lot farther. Mm. But we're not talking Mm. about that one today. We're talking about the physically larger A330-300, the first variant. And
1: and that was all aluminum construction, right? No composite or anything like that had entered the picture at the time. The
0: interesting part of that is Airbus really pioneered a lot of electronics in the aircraft, and so it was the first airliner to have side stick. Oh instead of a yoke. So how does a Boeing driver acclimate to using a side stick? <laughs> I, I, think the, I think the question is the other way around. I came from <laughs> Boeing and I went to the Airbus and it took me, no kidding, 30 seconds.
1: Really? Because I figured, you know, you'd be so used to the feedback that you get from the control wheel and all that stuff and going to a joystick Yeah. Would be just kind of unnerving. It was intuitive to the point where I don't ever want to go back and fly
0: an airplane with a yoke again. Wow. I mean, it's so intuitive. And you get a tray table, so it's out of your way. You get much more leg space. It's just more comfortable. (laughs) It has some issues. There's no feel. Mm. So So no real feedback? No real feedback. Oh. So the feedback you get is from the airplane in your butt, right? Yeah. Just riding on the airplane. If you sat in an Airbus and you moved the stick around, it would feel the same as if you were flying and moving the stick around. Wow. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's different. It's like more like playing a video game. But like I said, it took seconds to acclimate.
1: Yeah. I imagine this this piece of glass in the in the flight deck, right? That has your path and you're basically steering down that path. That's what it is. Really? Yeah,
0: absolutely. It has a little crosshair. And you are just driving the symbol of the airplane, which is a little square, into the crosshair. Wow. If you set it up correctly. Yeah. (laughs) Well,
1: and that's normal.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, know, junk in, junk out. Right. So So Airbus saw the Boeing 767 as a huge commercial success. So that's why they jumped on that bandwagon. The 767-200 was released in 1982. And Airbus Mm. was scrambling to to have a competitor. They launched the A330. It's quite similar and kind of looks the same in a lot of ways. It has a lot of similar performance. The A330 is a little wider, carries a few more people, goes a little bit farther. It weighs a similar half a million pounds. Sounds like corporate espionage to me. Well, I don't know about (laughs) that, but you could be right. It travels a little bit farther than the 767. It goes about 7,000 miles. Ah. In 2014, Airbus launched the A330neo. It just had different engines. It entered service in November 2018. By 2019, there were about 1,500 A330s in operation, wow. about 400 more on order. Almost every single one of them is still flying. Wow. So when Airbus built it, they did it right. Mm-hmm. You can't say that about the 767-200. It's, it's still very modern. It's prolific. It's largest operator is Turkish airlines, but they're operated around the world by a variety of carriers, including Delta Air France, Air Canada,
1: A lot of Asian carriers. I was going to say, I've flown a Delta one. I've flown an Air Canada one, long haul. Oh, yeah. It's popular. One of the features, like I said, that Airbus is
0: very proud of is the side stick instead of a yoke. And it's a pretty cool feature. I, you know, I fly the A320. We have the same side stick, and I am certainly a big fan of it. So it's easy to type rate throughout the lineup it is easier. It, it's very easy to go from a 320 to a 330 mm. and even from a 330 to a 380 and back to a 350 wow. now with a 380 is now out of um now out of production but the 350 is still in production yeah. Yeah. they're not the same you still have to go to school on them, sure but the concept is the same wow. now the 330 and 340 are most similar to each other the 320 is a little bit different but still very
1: similar. Yeah, I've, t- I've flown the 340 quite a bit when Singapore was flying. I'm direct out of LA to Singapore. Long flight.
0: LA to Singapore.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the
0: 340 is a great airplane to fly on, too. Airbus is nice and quiet and comfortable. They did a really good job. I like to say they got it right the first time. Hmm. Because, you know, we see a lot of changes in Boeings. The, especially the 737. The only change that we see in Airbus is literally the engines. Wow. Everything else is identical on the inside. Hmm. So when they designed it in like the late 80s, they got it right. Yeah. And it's still going. It's great. But today we're talking about a company. And you may have even flown on this company,
1: Qantas Airways. I've flown regional Qantas Australia. Oh, in what is Australia. that called?
0: Qantas Expro-
1: Oh, <sighs> something express. I can't remember. Yeah, I forget off the top of my
0: head. I don't have it written down, but I know I, I did run across it.
1: But I've yet to fly Qantas long haul, and I'd, I'd like to at some point because they've got a great, great record.
0: They have a cool fleet, too.
1: Yeah. They have A380s,
0: 340s. They have 787s. I mean, it's a pretty cool company. But let me talk about Qantas for a second. Qantas Airways is the flag carrier of Australia. It's Australia's largest airline. It's the third oldest airline in the world. Wow. The third oldest. Wow. First oldest is KLM, and the second oldest is Avianca.
1: Oh, I didn't know Avianca was that
0: old. I didn't realize it was that old either. Wow. So when I look at these, you know, it takes me a long time to research because it opens like an <laughs> Easter egg, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, it's the third. Then I got to go find the first right. and the second and the fourth. And <laughs> so all these things just, it cascades for me. So, but I love doing the research here. Qantas was founded in November of 1920. It started flying passengers in 1935. Oh, was it like doing mail yeah, and cargo before Yeah, I was doing mail and cargo before that. Yep. Here's a fun fact I knew. So I have an Australian friend and I told him this fact and he said, yeah, no shit. But <laughs> Qantas is an acronym. I didn't know that. Huh? And okay. I told him and he was
1: like, oh yeah, huh we all know that.
0: Well, I'm like, yeah, you live in Australia. I don't know.
1: Yeah. All right. So it's kind of like the toilet spinning around the other way around down there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If
0: <laughs> I told him, he'd be like, well, no shit, dumbass. i am like, okay. Uh. Anyway. So it's an acronym for the airline's original name, Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services.
1: Oh, that makes sense. I know. Because they used to
0: fly from Queensland into the Northern, Northern Territory. <laughs> I like the name Qantas better. Yeah, yeah,
1: it rolls off the tongue a little easier. And they're nicknamed the Flying Kangaroo, yeah.
0: which is also cool.
1: Right? A I big kangaroo like on the tail. What do you expect? Yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. So Qantas is a founding member of the One World airline alliance, along with American Airlines. The airline is based in Sydney. Well, actually, they're based in the suburb of Sydney called Mascot. It's adjacent to the main hub, which is the Sydney Airport. Yep. They employ roughly thirty thousand people. They operate a fleet of around 300 aircraft, and those include narrow-body Boeing and Airbus models, as well as wide-body Airbus, including the A380, the Boeing 787.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you got any questions about Qantas? (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Qantas is kind of an interesting airline, generally speaking, because when you see an airline like Delta or you see an airline like American, it had taken so many other airlines, Mm-hmm. And merged and merged and merged and merged and merged that we don't really have an old airline in the United States.
1: True, because you know um, my mom's uncle used to work for what became Northwest Orient, which became part of Delta right. in that merger. Right. Right. So you, you kind of lose those those early airlines, right? Right. We lost East the Eastern early airlines. airlines. Brandiff. Right. Braniff. Right. I mean. TWA, <laughs> yeah, Midwest
0: Express, <laughs> oh, and yeah. all of these, you know, all of those other ones. Piedmont Express, <laughs> right? PSA. I did a, I did oh. an episode on, uh, on PSA, which was sort of the model for Southwest Airlines. Uh-huh. So PSA got absorbed by America West, which got absorbed by U.S. Airways, which got absorbed by American. American. Yeah. So yeah, we don't really have old airlines in the United States, but Qantas was always Qantas. Wow
1: it's oh. kind of it, that's, that's impressive kind of, yeah it's a
0: cool legacy to yeah. have i guess that makes last year that's their hundredth hundredth anniversary wow that's amazing i, I think so too yeah I, I was kind of blown away by that since you don't have any questions on Qantas, we'll move on you ready for the date go for it october 7th 2008 recent pretty recent yeah Qantas flight 72 was scheduled to fly from singapore to perth in the a330 300 series they had purchased this airplane new in 2003. It had a stellar safety record, as did the crew. So let's get that part out of the way right now.
1: Yeah, five-year-old airframe,
0: good maintenance record, Yeah, and crew with good history. Yeah. You know, a lot of times on the podcast, we look in training records. We look mm-hmm. at all of this, uh, you know, maintenance records and things like that. There's nothing to see here. The flight departed on time, 9.30 a.m. It was just over five hours from Singapore to Perth, so not even that far. There were 303 passengers on board that day. So the airplane, having a p- capacity of around 300, was completely full. Packed. <laughs> Not a single vacant seat. It had a crew of three pilots and nine flight attendants on board for a total of 315 occupants. Like I said, every seat full. Wow. The 53-year-old captain, Kevin Sullivan, he was a former U.S. Navy pilot. And he was joined up front by First Officer Peter Lipset and Relief Officer Ross Hales. So there's three pilots on board. The full airplane took off, climbed to 37,000 feet. No issues. Uneventful. That's it. The ride was perfectly smooth. It was daytime. The weather was clear. Ross, the relief officer, he took his break... So basically, since there's three people on the flight deck, one of them goes back and he goes, he'll go back for like an hour. Then he'll come back up and the first officer
1: will go back and have a break. And then he'll come back up and then the captain will go back and have yeah. a break. Now, when you say go back, is this an aircraft that has one of those crew rest areas or do they, they take an, uh, an empty seat or do they so clear, in the three, block a, a seat?
0: <laughs> so in the A330, they take one A. Oh, ah, okay. So they have a blocked off first yep. class seat. That's not like crew rest for a really long haul, but it's crew rest for a short haul airplane. Yeah. You can fly like up to 10 hours on an airplane that has that kind of crew rest. Gotcha. You're not going to do like Newark to Dubai. Sydney or <laughs> Newark, Dubai or something on it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I said the ride was perfectly smooth. So he takes his break. He wraps up and then first officer, uh, Peter, ellips it. He goes on his break and Ross, the relief officer, takes over his duties up front. Nothing I mean, unusual. Yeah. So in order to get from Singapore mm. to Australia, you have to fly over the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. right? So that's what they did. Fun fact, later in aviation history, this is the same part of the Indian Ocean where the initial search for Malaysian Airlines 370 <sighs> would was take wondering. place yeah. a few years later. Yeah, which yeah. it's basically in the middle of nowhere.
1: It's kind of, Yeah, it's off the west coast of Australia.
0: Yeah. There's nothing there.
1: It's just in the, in the southern fun, Indian Ocean. Fun little space tidbit. When you deorbit something big, you aim for this place in the southern Indian Ocean called Point Nemo. And it is the point on the planet Earth that is furthest away from any landmass. Oh, it, wow. It makes I it, had no idea. That's where they're going to drop the ISS in when they decommission it. I just read in the that 2030s. article. Yeah. yeah that's pretty amazing. Wild. Anyways. They're not
0: that far. They're kind of off the coast of Australia. Not, yeah. w- not crazy far out in the Indian Ocean. But this is where they, and why I said initially looked for the Malaysian airlines is because initially they looked relatively close. Right. And then they started to expand their search when they couldn't find
1: it. So, well, and then when they got satellite recordings from right, the engines. From right? the pings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's get back to the story. Sorry. So we have, <laughs>
0: no, it's fine. We have Captain Kevin. He's actually the flying pilot for this leg. And relief
1: officer Ross is up front. They're just relaxing and the Airbus is doing all the work. Yeah. So they're engaging in one of their famous conversations that you have on long-haul
0: flights. Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, they're, they're reading magazines. They're talking nonsense. I mean, they're just chilling. <laughs> so out of nowhere, the autopilot, just out of nowhere, suddenly disengages. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> no, they go, um, that's not right. Initially, the pilots don't have any idea why. But after a few moments, the aircraft diagnoses itself and it spits out the failure message. Okay. It's called an eCAM message. Basically, it tells you what's wrong. Like check engine light came yeah, on. Yeah, check engine light came yeah. on. It's basically like, oh hey. And this one is a an amber message. So it's what we call a level two message. Not an emergency. That would be like a level three. Okay. And a level one, we wouldn't even see in flight. Oh. So not a big deal. So not a big deal, but you probably should do something about it. The autopilot's off. So Captain Kevin, he grabs his side stick yeah. while um, First Officer Ross sees only the autopilot off message. It's not particularly helpful because they already knew the autopilot was off. <laughs> he reaches up. He presses the button to turn the autopilot back on, but it doesn't work. Hmm. As he presses the button, it doesn't work. The airplane starts an uncommanded climb. <laughs> That's not good. He has the joystick and he's holding it. It's all fly-by-wire. Right. The airplane just climbs up 200 feet in a matter of just a couple seconds all by itself. So after a long moment, the giant airplane begins to respond to his controls again. Uh-huh. So it was just not responding to his controls. Captain Kevin levels it back, gets back to 37,000 feet, and they sit there baffled for a minute because they don't have any other messages. And they just stare at each other like... That's okay, a, we had an autopilot off, and then we climbed 200 feet, and we have no idea what's going on. Yeah, They run the appropriate procedure to just clear the autopilot message off, okay. which in the Airbus is you press a clear button, and then some messages pop up. Hey, you don't have an autopilot anymore. You press it again, and that's cleared. In two minutes, another ECAM message pops up that says NAV1IR fault. What is a NAV1IR? The NAV1IR is called the... ADERU, that's short for Air Data Inertial Reference Unit. Okay? okay. So they have a fault from the number one Air Data Inertial Reference Unit.
1: Now, it, when I think of inertial data, that's basically where I am. Yes. So it is telling the aircraft the speed, uh, if it's rolling, if it's
0: pitching, if it's doing Kay. anything out of the ordinary. Yeah. It's telling it if it's flat, if how fast it's going. It's basically measuring all of its flight parameters. Yeah. There are three of these IRs. Okay. Inertial reference units. Okay, now, there's
1: three of them. Now is like one primer and the other two backup, or do they like vote or
0: they vote. Sometimes though, when one unit is busy, the other one takes over to do other functions that one unit isn't doing. Because remember, the airplane was designed in the eighties. Right. So you may have one IR unit doing calculations on speed and bank and things like that when the aircraft is is making maneuvers, okay. while the other one is doing autopilot stuff. Okay.
1: So they they talk amongst they, each other, and they spit out a, kind of a, a they, nice— They have confab, they have some coffee, and they figure out what needs to happen Exactly. Next. And they figure out together what needs to happen. They also provide a lot of protections to the airplane. Well, and that's a big difference between Boeing and Airbus, because uh, not that Boeing doesn't provide—Boeing cockpits don't— provide protections but airbus automates a lot more of that right. right okay so just as we have this nav ir1 fault the airplane starts to
0: give stall, stall warnings stall. and overspeed warnings at the same time hmm let me unbox that for you really quick a stall is when the stall, airplane is going stall. too slow and the wings not able to fly anymore right an overspeed warning is when the airplane is going too fast nice. and approaching a
1: high speed stall but you can't have them both at the same time yeah i mean that sounds like uh it's Zero and one are correct. And they both can't be correct. Correct. So they're alternating.
0: So they're going over speed and then stall. Overspeed, stall. So they're getting a boop, 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 chime, and then a stall, stall, chime. And it's going back and forth. And In the meantime, the airplane is just flying along normally, Yes, it's just flying. Captain Kevin loses his instruments on this side. So he just goes on his side. So he just looks over to the other side. Not a big deal. Right. And he goes okay, we're still flying. I don't know what's going on. So they instantly diagnose it as it has a computer problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The protections, like I said, like you hinted at, actually, the protections are fully automated and some of them can't be overridden by the pilot at all. Without turning off all the Adaroos and other flight computers, you can't override the protections.
1: Yeah. Which is a good thing, right?
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But turning off the Adaroos could result in flight control malfunctions because it's all fly-by-wire. Wow. So turning off all the ADARUS could be a life-threatening emergency. Yeah, it's kind of like turning off your car while you're barreling down the interstate. Exactly. Uh, You don't have steering anymore. You don't have brakes. Yeah. So basically what happens is the Aideroos, or the IRs, the inertial reference units, feed information to the flight computer. Yep. And the flight computer then goes out to the other control computers and
1: says, "Do this. This is what we need done." Yeah, but if and if it's got bad information, it's making potentially bad decisions. Right. Which probably explains that unanticipated 200 foot climb that was uncommanded. (laughs) Yes. So I think if I were to make a guess, one
0: of the IRS gave some bad information, and the other IR went, "Oh, hey, wait a minute." Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll I'll just let's let's just make this let's make it really simple, (laughs) right? IR on, good. IR off, bad. Bad. Yeah, IR broken, also bad. Right. Okay. So given the situation, the captain, Captain Kevin, asked the relief officer, Ross, to call First Officer Peter, God, I wish his name was Frank, First Officer Peter, (laughs) back up to the cockpit. So at 12.40 p.m., while Ross is using the interphone to talk to the flight attendant to send... Peter back up. The aircraft abruptly pitches nose down. Whoa. The captain, he pulls back hard on the side stick to stop the pitch down. Yeah. And at first, it has absolutely no effect. He holds the side stick back. And after a long 14 seconds, that is a really long time. Oh. The Airbus suddenly starts listening to him. But not before it had reached a maximum pitch angle of eight and a half degrees nose down. That's 10 degrees lower than a standard pitch angle. And here's the scary part. It had flown the beginning of a parabolic arc descending 700 feet in 15 seconds. Holy
1: crap.
0: And nearing its structural limit of negative 1G. Wow. Wow. I want to talk about what negative 1G means in an airplane. You and I are experiencing positive 1G right Right. now. We stick to the floor. Yep. As we approach 0Gs, things still stay down, but they become lighter. Yep. And at 0Gs, if we're standing up, we could, like, lift our legs, right? And we would just stand there.
1: Exactly. All right? Yeah, we'd weightless. Yeah. As we
0: pass 0G, we start to move toward the ceiling. The closer we get to 1G the faster we move toward the ceiling right. until we are at negative 1g when we are essentially falling with the
1: speed of gravity towards the ceiling up. Yeah. So yeah.
0: imagine being suspended on your ceiling
1: and having the cord cut. Um, you. I don't have to imagine that. <laughs> that sounds like something you've experienced. It has. It was in the early 90s. And I was uh, flying into Orlando. And you get good at timing when you go to the bathroom before uh, final approach. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can get, it, get there and yeah. make it back, right? Absolutely. Because so you, don't, Cause have you uncomfort- don't know the ground delay and yeah, all that stuff. Exactly. You run into the terminal. Yeah. So you know, uneventful flight, no turbulence, no 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 nothing, right? Go to the bathroom, and on my way back, I was suddenly on the ceiling for about a second. Whoa! Which was scarier than, of course, scarier than hell. You know, people screaming. I land across two seats. Oh, Thankfully, goodness. I wasn't even bruised. Um, oh wow! Which I was pleasantly surprised. So I don't know if I hit 1G, but, you know, it definitely was—I definitely touched the ceiling. So let's talk about the parabolic arc for a second. I mean, that's scary,
0: right? But at least you weren't hurt. Right. So the parabolic arc is how the zero-G airplane maintains zero-Gs. So when you're flying the parabolic arc— you can maintain exactly the same acceleration by flying that parabola. Oh, that makes sense. So when they entered that negative 0.85G load, they flew a parabolic arc, which means that for around probably 10 seconds, everything was sticking to the ceiling, sticking there with the force of gravity. Oh, oh. I cannot imagine. 10 seconds, counting to 10, nice and slow, and sticking to the ceiling and everything around you. I cannot imagine what it would have been like. To be in that cabin. Oh. Uh, just. Oh. During that 15 seconds, all hell was breaking loose in the cabin. Oh, yeah. Everything not attached to the airplane or belted in was propelled to the ceiling, like we said, almost oh, with the force of gravity. Wow. Hot drinks, bags, people, of course, all the galley items, including oh, the carts in the aisles and the flight attendants. So let
1: me show you some pictures of that. I mean, the I mean, things that would go through your head is during those 14 seconds. Oh, Yeah. 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 and and to be the to be the thing that goes through those panels. Your head would be going through the panels.
0: Bags are flying out. I mean, every like I said, all hell is breaking loose in the cabin.
1: Oh, no kidding. Wow. And that was probably caused, I'm guessing, by a cart or a person Cart
0: or or a person, right. Oh.
1: I mean it's bad. (laughs) Oh, here's a picture of the I
0: here's the picture of the nav one IR fault. That's it. It just says nav one IR IR fault. fault. Yeah. So you've seen the pictures. Let's go back to the story.
1: Uh, still just,
0: <laughs> so mm. the pilots didn't know it, but people were hurt. Oh, yeah. And so we'll get back to that in a bit. So the captain regains control of the aircraft after 15 seconds, and he starts to climb back up to the assigned altitude of 37,000 feet. During that 15 seconds, Ross, he's the relief officer, he turns on the fasten seatbelt sign, although yeah, it's good a thinking. After the fact. But <laughs> if you weren't buckled, it was certainly going to be not going to be possible for you to get buckled at that point. Because you've already hit the ceiling really hard. He also made a PA announcement. Again, good thinking. A little after. A little after the <laughs> fact. So as Captain Kevin flew, the relief officer, he dealt with those ECAMs or error messages. At one point, he was directed to turn off the so number one IR. Who provided that direction? Was this a checklist or was this? So this is the airplane and it goes bing and then it tells you what to do. Oh, so it's the onboard help desk. It's the onboard help desk. So it has a whole bunch of programmed faults and it says, hey, if this happens, press this button, press this button. And as you press the buttons, the step goes away. So it's actually pretty nice. Yeah, that's cool. So he was directed to turn off the IR, the number one IR, which he did. And that cleared the message. Then the checklist after a few minutes told him to turn it back on. Okay. Okay, he's following the checklist. Control Alt Delete Reset. Yep, which he salute. did, and we already <laughs> talked about how this airplane would be without with flying it without the correct flight computer inputs. Like I said, life or death emergency. So if you attempt to fly an Airbus without the flight computers, or in the case of a full failure, what you have are rudders and manual trim. That's and it. That is it. Wow. So you can't roll the airplane with the ailerons. No. To descend, you have to trim the a wheel trim like crazy. down. Yeah. To maintain altitude, you're trimming. That is called manual backup, and it is only designed to buy you time to get the computers back on. This is not a flight mode. Yeah. This is, here's some time to fly straight and level while you guys work through the problem. It's the all oh shit mode. Exactly. <laughs> so as he turned it back on, the airplane, again, pitches down abruptly despite Captain Kevin pulling back on the stick to stop it. But this time, not reaching as high of a G-load, though still negative and things are still flying and hitting the ceiling, they descend just 400 feet and regain control. Mm. And they really, they have messages that are saying overspeed, stall. Oh, and these messages are flashing up on the computer so fast that they can't take any action to clear them. So it'll come up and oh, wow. then they'll say, ECAM and go to try to run it, it'll disappear. and then something else will come up, and they'll go to try to run it, it disappears. Disappears. So the fault is going in and out. Stole. Stole. And
1: variety of faults. Stole. Stole. In in computer science, we kind of call this a race condition. Okay. Where you've got multiple things all operating at the same time, and a, a failure creates a condition that something else responds to, and then the original situation doesn't get resolved and it reverses right race conditions are bad
0: i mean yes and i I believe that's probably what's happening in Mm. these computers yeah it's a bad situation so the first officer gets up to the cockpit after the second event he's okay he's not injured and they all discuss the situation the crew decides that they need to land the aircraft as soon as possible (laughs) (laughs) they were not confident that further pitch down pitch up events would not occur okay so they're scared They were also aware that there may be some injuries in the cabin, but at that stage, they weren't aware of the extent of the injuries. At 12.49 p.m., the crew makes an emergency broadcast to air traffic control, advising them that they had, quote, experienced flight computer problems, because they really don't know what's wrong, and that some people had been injured. They requested a clearance to divert to Learmonth, Learmonth, Australia, Learmonth, Yeah, I'm trying to
1: think of what's north of Perth, and there's not too much. There's not
0: much there. Yeah. The flight control fault and inertial reference lights stay on for the remainder of the flight. The crew couldn't do anything about these messages. They were constantly turning on and off, like I said. So they can't clear them because they're constantly turning off. And each time they turn on, alert tones turn on, and they can't silence the alert tone. And then it goes away, and then it comes back. And so they're flying in a very distracted environment yeah, in an yeah. airplane that they have no idea what's going on.
1: I remember one time flying in an uncertain situation and the captain got on and said the airplane's in a configuration it shouldn't be in, which was not very comforting That's as not a helpful. passenger. Right. No, right. Right. But you know, they're you're used to configure known configurations. Yeah. And if you get in this, you know, configuration mumble, you do these things to get to return to normal. Yes, right? exactly. But
0: That's what we do. We look at the ecam, we run the ecam, it returns us to normal. Yeah. Or it returns us to the next ecam and we run that ecam. And so it's a cascading like we just clear one, clear the one, clear one, clear the next, yeah. clear the next. But in this case starting with the most just, severe.
1: In this case they're just dealing with almost random random seemingly unhelpful. random unhelpful.
0: Yeah. They can't diagnose what's going on cuz wow. the alerts are going off and the tones are going off and the constantly messages are constantly coming and going. Yeah. They they're just doing the best they can. So the flight crew calls the flight attendants using the cabin interphone to get as much information as possible. But they had also asked the flight attendants not to get up because they had they didn't know what was yeah they happen. had no confidence that they wouldn't dive right. So the <laughs> flight attendants are trying to assess the situation from their jump seats, which is not very effective. No. Five minutes later, the crew told ATC that they had some serious injuries on their hands, including some broken bones and severe lacerations and bleeding. That's this is depressing. all they know yeah. they don't want to unbuckle. So they're all buckled. Everybody's buckled in and yep. they don't want to unbuckle and figure out what's wrong. The crew contact their own maintenance via the sat phone and they work through some switches, none of them changed anything. Mm. In the meantime, all the alarms are still going on, still going off, wow. still random coming and going. They don't have time to run diagnostics and then they go away and then they come back. The A330 is flown by Captain Kevin. He makes wide orbits around the airport below him, and he cautiously descends. So they're directed by maintenance, and they complete an approach checklist, and then they do a flight control check. They're concerned about getting too close to the ground and having runaway
1: pitch again for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, because things that happen at altitude, you can deal with. You have more runway, so to speak, to deal with than things that happen close to the ground. Right. Yeah. And, and in this case, it's kind of interesting because they have what they think is a
0: malfunctioning inertial reference unit, Adaru, and their Adaru feeds their flight management computer. So they can't load anything into the flight management computer because it shows that it's failed. Right. It's right. like, I don't know what you want. I don't know where I am. I don't know if I'm flying or not. I'm basically out here on my own. Wow. So they can't load anything into the nav computer. So they're just relying on their eyes. Yeah, so complete VFR and basically seat of the pants flying, And thankfully, it was a beautiful VFR day over, I mean, over northwestern Australia. So the captain positions the A330 15 nautical miles out for a straight-in approach. He takes it nice and slow. He lands without further incident at Learmouth almost exactly one hour after after the initial upset. (sighs) Although the airplane landed safely, a lot of people were hurt. One flight attendant, yeah... One flight attendant and at least 13 passengers were admitted to the hospital with serious injuries. Wow. The serious injuries wow. included serious spinal injuries, deep cuts, severe broken bones, and burns. Mm. At least 100 other passengers had minor injuries. They were treated on site. About 30 of those people were admitted for a short stay to the hospital, but they were released.
1: And how many of those people do you think ever got on an airplane again? Oh, boy. After, after After I hit the ceiling... Um, you know, I was commuting at the right. time, and so that was on a probably a Sunday or Monday night, yeah. and getting back on an airplane that Thursday was incredible. And I didn't even have a bruise. I can't imagine what it would have been like to experience what they experienced, seeing people go through the ceiling to, uh, ceiling, Literally panels. go through the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. And then get on an airplane at some point. Wow. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's. I dramatic. mean, it, it's a testament to the strength of the air per, airframe. Oh, definitely. And so the takeaway here is: people think, "Oh,
0: fifteen seconds," but if you're in that situation <laughs> for fifteen seconds, yeah. I mean, it feels yeah. like an eternity.
1: Yeah, I mean that that one second, one I second mean, of hitting the roof, yeah, hitting the ceiling. You know, uh, it, it, it is visceral to this day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's 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 crazy. I mean, I've been in some pretty severe turbulence. I've been belted, thankfully. Yeah. We've had spilled drinks and things hit the ceiling, but I've never had any passengers hit the ceiling. So I want to keep that yeah. going. Yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> Thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> so the flight crew was interviewed, and they described the pitch down movement as abrupt, but very smooth and without any characteristics of turbulence. The A330's huh. movement was solely in the vertical up or down plane. Okay. It didn't roll side to side at all. Okay. It kept its wings level fun fact the captain would go on to write a book about the event <laughs> what's it titled oh
1: shit I have it I have it in the I have it in the reference because okay. i because
0: I, I read some pieces out of it so the aircraft computers were pulled for analysis and they were replaced with new units the flight data recorder information was downloaded and the cockpit voice recorder information was downloaded as well after extensive checking the aircraft was flown to maintenance and returned to service Wow huh? This aircraft is still in service with Qantas. In fact, I looked it up this morning. It flew from Cairns to Melbourne today. Wow. But let's talk about...
1: Yeah, I mean, did they ever get to root cause on this
0: thing? So they did, and it's... Oh, boy. I'm glad you're here to explain it. Okay. So the Aideroo, like I said, the inertial reference unit, and the primary flight computer were both tested. No flaws in the software or hardware were found. However, using their technical magic, Airbus engineers compared the flight data recorder information with the primary flight computer data information because it was still fresh enough to download. And because Mm. it wasn't a crash, that information was still Still there. there. The primary flight computer showed that while cruising at 37,000 feet, the pitch of the aircraft was suddenly, instantly in fact, increased to 50 degrees nose up. However... When they compared the flight data recorder, it showed the aircraft in level flight. So the
1: boxes were tested good. Yeah. So each box was right. Right. But clearly they were not operating on the same set of data. Right. Exactly. Wow. But one box talks directly
0: to the other box. Where did the data come from? So I have pretty good Airbus knowledge. We can easily understand why the nose pitched down so abruptly. It's because one of the flight computers thought the nose was like up. pointed at the sky. Yeah. And way out of the normal flight envelope. Wow. It that's what triggered the stall warning and pitched huh. the nose down. Under these circumstances, the Airbus flight computer saw this sudden nose up as a loss of control, yeah. triggered the protection system,
1: actually removing the side stick from which explained the why the pilot. pilot couldn't control the Until that condition was fixed. Was fixed. 14 14 seconds or so later. Exactly. And the A330. So it took uh, the human out of the
0: loop. Took the human out of the loop, and it initiated its own recovery, even though it was recovering from a condition that didn't actually exist. didn't exist. Yeah. Now, clearly, okay, this raises a lot of questions about how much input a pilot should have. Yeah. But it still doesn't answer why. Because at the end of
1: the day, when things go off the rails, you first fly the plane. You want the pilot to have control, because otherwise, why is the pilot there? Exactly. But Mm. Airbus
0: does not necessarily agree with that philosophy. Hmm. So let me tell you about how Airbus works for a second. If we draw two concentric circles, one outside of the other.
1: You're making me think of donuts now.
0: (laughs) That's what we're drawing. We're drawing a donut. So the whole of the donut is normal. Okay. The donut part is abnormal. And you can control both of these. Okay. So when you're flying in normal, you can do whatever you want. When you pitch up or you roll too much, you go into the abnormal part. The Airbus will let you do it. But as soon as you let go of the side stick, she just takes you right back to normal. Got it. And you can't exit that part, no matter how hard you try. So you can literally take the stick, push it to the stop, and it'll roll 67 degrees to the right. And it will not roll any farther. Mm. You can take the stick and you can pull it back to the stop. It says, hey... You're trying to do something stupid. You're trying to do something dumb. Yeah. I'm not going to let you do that. Now, imagine that we have an upset, and it goes outside of the donut.
1: Yeah. Fully both parts. At that point... Now, you use the phrase upset. So by upset, do you mean, you know, loss of control? I mean loss of control. Okay. Yes.
0: It's not in a normal flight, any kind of normal flight condition. So when you go outside of that second concentric circle, the airplane says, hey, you can't do this anymore. Whatever you're doing... Is not right. <laughs> yeah. Stop doing it. In fact, stop doing it so bad I'm that gonna take you out of the I'm going to take you out of the loop. And I'm going to put you back in the middle. It's, it's slapping your hand and saying, "Nah, no. Nah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Again, it raises
1: some questions. Well, and we could talk uh, cockpit automation philosophy with Boeing as well. Right. right? Boeing
0: has a, diff- a completely different philosophy. Right. Boeing would say that once you get out of that, you're on your own. So Boeing would, takes the opposite. They say, okay, they'll do autopilot and they'll do protections. Once you get out of there, it says, hey, buddy. Fly the plane. Fly the plane. Get, get it back. Yeah, Not up to me. I didn't do this. I didn't make this mess. I'm not going to fix it.
1: Yeah.
0: Airbus takes exactly the opposite approach. But it still doesn't answer why the computer thought that the airplane had suddenly gone near vertical. It just doesn't answer. We don't know. So let's stop talking about that and start talking about voting machines for a second. Okay. I mean, are
1: you going to make this political? Yeah, no, no, no we're not going to make it political. But but we're going to talk about Just electronic
0: kidding. voting machines for a minute. So in Belgium in 2003, there was an election. There was electronic voting machines, and they were being used for the first time. When the election was over, a little-known communist candidate had gotten more votes than were available in her district.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: something's amiss. So once the backup cards were tallied. So they have a little paper card. Once oh, the backup yeah. cards were tallied, she'd lost. But when they took the total number of votes that she'd received via the backup and they deducted it from the electronic tally, uh-huh. the difference was 4,096. <laughs> That's an auspicious number in computer
1: science terminology. It
0: means absolutely nothing to the normal person. Mm-mm. 4,096. So what? That means something to you because you're a computer guy. Yeah, What's that power, mean to you? It's a power of two, which means it's... It is one bit. The voting machine was examined. The hardware was examined and tested. The mm. software was examined and tested. And like the A330, no flaws were found. But like the A330, something did go wrong. Yep. A bit got flipped. So actually, I'm going to let you explain
1: binary numbers. Sure. Can you do that? Sure. So yeah, no, I'll, I'll just kind of okay. go for it. Okay. All right. So computers, computers don't talk in terms of numbers as you and I think of them they talk in terms of binary numbers. And a binary representation of a number is nothing but a sequence of ones and zeros. Right. If you think of them as as ones and zeros in columns, um, four bits can use, be used to describe a number up to 16. Um, five bits can be used to describe a number up to 32. The number zero is uh, is a binary number of all, all zeros, zero, 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 zero. One is zero 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 one. Right. Two is zero zero one zero. Okay, so we're basically
0: so what you're saying is the power of two, so one would be two to the zero power.
1: Correct. Okay, yep. good. And then the first two would be two to the one power. Correct. Exactly. So binary arithmetic is is fascinating. I could go on long term long about it. But bottom line is computers always talk in terms of bits being on or off. So you can do amazingly complex things with with just ones and zeros, and that in fact, that's the the core in which uh, all computers uh, do their processing, do their storage. and then and I'm so assuming
0: on. we take those numbers and we use
1: software, tell us what those numbers mean. Yeah, so so you know, you could have a sixteen bit number that was zero one zero 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 one zero one zero one. Right. And that was pretty good. Off the top of my head, I don't know uh, what that is. Right, right. But but it's really easy to interpret those things. And we do it all the time. So 4096 does mean something to you. And it represents 4096 is one with a bunch of trailing zeros. Right. Two to the 12th power. Yep. 2048 is one with a number of zeros, but one less zero than the 4096.
0: So, in the case of the voting machine, one machine in the whole bunch of voting machines had the thirteenth column switched
1: thirteenth bit from a one from a zero Zero to to a one one somehow, and it got stuck. I've got some fun stuck, but bit stories
0: so but so we have to ask what does that have to do with people smashing into the ceiling of an airplane i'm guessing a bit got stuck on one of these flight computers so taking a, so if we take a closer look at the computer code we find that airbus uses binary strings like we said yep. all computers use binary strings to interpret information from the inertial reference unit that we had the initial fault on yep. and send that data to the flight computer
1: Yeah, and they're not communicating in terms of strings of, like, numbers 0 through 10. They're communicating in binary digits. Right. right? In the case of the Airbus, it uses two sets of binary numbers. It uses a header and a
0: content string. The header is, like, like... 8 characters long. Yep. Okay, 0 to 8, each to the power of 2. And the content string is, like, 32 or 36 characters long. Yep. So the header says, hey, computer, I'm sending you... Speed, altitude, roll, pitch, something big, and the content
1: string says is the actual value. Exactly what? Yeah, what's yeah happening. the header is saying this is speed information, and the the data data element of it is the actual speed. Exactly. So
0: when the engineers looked at the data string that went into the primary computer from the failed inertial reference unit, they saw that a binary bit flip had occurred in the header it flipped a one to a zero where it it shouldn't have and it told the computer that altitude information was in fact pitch information it changed the header and that means the content string was misread by the primary flight computer resulting in the flight computer understanding that the aircraft was pitched up fifty degrees. Yeah. When in fact That's real. So, so so each of
1: those each of those subsystems would test test out normally, but it was just the communication of those two boxes in particular, and probably just those two boxes yes. that had this problem. Yep. Wow. But why did it happen? Yeah. Man. Was it was it a bad wire connecting? The input of the output. I don't know. Well, there's the a long
0: story behind this.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna get it kind
0: of short, but you're gonna you're gonna catch up on this pretty quickly. So in 2009, Toyota settled a lawsuit where Lexus and Toyota vehicles would run away and had runaway accelerators. Oh, I remember that. I yeah, remember it too. Because
1: they they would even replace carpets because they figured people were just accidentally mashing on the gas pedal and stuff.
0: Right. So for a few years. Toyota blamed their customers. They used the excuse of the floor mat jammed, yeah. the Excel- people pressing the wrong pedal. They said they were misusing the cruise control, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2008, there was a 911 call that was received from a driver in a runaway Lexus. The 911 call was recorded and it went for the time, what we would call viral. The Lexus had accelerated to over 130 miles an hour. The driver was explaining carefully and patiently to the 911 responder that he couldn't turn the car off. He had worn out the brakes completely. <sighs> Nothing was blocking the accelerator. I remember this, this and audio record. And the cruise control was not on. Wow. So he went step by step through each thing. Now, sadly, the call ended with the four occupants of the car dying. <sighs> but obviously, it made huge waves. Oh, yeah. yeah. After that, Toyota promptly settled over 500 lawsuits that they'd been putting off. However, independent inspectors found no flaws in their computers, their hardware, or their code. So again, what happened? So we might have an answer here. But we have to look way back at NASA and IBM in the early days. IBM, in making early computer boards, noticed that bits would randomly flip. They conducted experiments and found that at first, some of their boards were polluted with radium and other radioactive (laughs) elements that came up when they mined the silica. Mm -hmm. Well... They quickly diagnosed those boards and they didn't work because the bits kept flipping because they were radioactively excited electrons. That makes sense, unfortunately. Yeah, that, so that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So that caused data failures and hardware crashes. But they also noticed that higher elevations caused more bit flips on the board. Cosmic
1: radiation and cosmic... Oh, because this plagued spacecraft as well. It did. So they dubbed these single event upsets. Yeah,
0: SEUs. Bit flips yeah. in space are so common that computers on spacecraft use comparative computing to make calculations. Right. Yep. Basically they have 3 or 4 computers that each do the same work. They compare the data. If one piece is off, they discard that data and they use the 3 that agree. Yep. Yep. The airplanes Space Shuttle was very
1: uh, had multiple flight computers exactly for that reason. Airplanes do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and That's why? Like an ugly chuckle. I know, I know. And
0: why? You already diagnosed it. I <sighs> I knew you'd be ahead of me. <laughs> Cosmic rays highly charged wow. cosmic particles. We can never know if this was the actual cause because they don't leave a no, and, they don't leave a trail. They and, only
1: leave a data trail. Exactly. And when you reset the device, the bit flip goes away. Yeah, it's very ephemeral.
0: So cosmic rays are definitely not a myth. We discovered them way back in 1900s and you can actually see them for yourself. You can build a cloud chamber at home yeah. and you can see those electrons and
1: all those thi- well, particles going through. It, it, you can't see the particle. You can see their trail. Trail. That right. they leave, yeah. You know, and, and for folks like me who fly a lot and you who fly an enormous amount, right? I mean, over time, we need to be concerned about the amount of cosmic radiation that our bodies absorb right Right? and the higher up we go in the atmosphere the worse it gets because
0: as the the highly charged cosmic particles come down through the atmosphere they hit other particles and they spread and spread and spread losing their charge Pachinko game (laughs) yeah like a big lightning bolt or something right like just kind of (laughs) loses as it goes (laughs) down at the bottom there's very little left (laughs) Uh, and some of those particles are larger than others and they move faster which means they contain more energy right So they're very strong in space, but as they hit the atmosphere, like I said, they collide and they dissipate energy. Some of them, however, are powerful and fast moving and they reach the ground. As humans, we don't worry about them because we evolved with them. Yeah, it's just part of the natural background. But as circuits get smaller and smaller, it takes smaller amounts of electricity to flip a bit. Back when microcircuits were invented, it took more energy to compute basic data. Lots oh, yeah. more energy, yeah. and that also means it took more energy to conduct a bit flip. A few hundred million electrons it would take to flip a bit, but now circuits are so
1: small, and the amount of energy that we need could be as little as a thousand electrons. Back in the mid '80s, I'm going to date myself here. I was I was going to undergrad school in in Minnesota, and I was working with a material scientist who was working on integrated circuit design and manufacturing technologies. And he made a path in an integrated circuit that was so narrow, an electron wouldn't actually move down it. Oh, wow. At that time. At that time. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, we've overcome that through, you know, cool, innovative materials and, you know, semiconductors and... Yeah, some semi- different ways of making semiconductors right. to make these. But... But modern chipsets and computers and cars and uh, I guess airplanes, mm-hmm. um, you know, it makes it's interesting. We've added more vulnerability to bit flips uh, as a result of min- miniaturization. That is exactly what
0: happened. Mini- wow. mi- we miniaturized things and we actually made ourselves more vulnerable. Yeah. And it's a big deal. But bit flips happen all the time. Yeah. All the time. Particularly powerful particles may cause, as you mentioned before, what's called a latch. Yeah. The insidious thing about a latch, it basically opens the bit and it won't allow it to close. It doesn't break the equipment. So when you power it off, the switch closes, it's not broken, right. and there's no physical evidence that it happened.
1: And latches do happen regularly. It In the spacecraft that we work with, it is common. Again, it's not about it being always operational. It's about it being reliable. And it's very common to do a reset of elements and have problems just go away. And there are latches and SEUs. We do it all the time
0: in airplanes. We have a problem, we shut it down, we start it back up, yeah. and it goes away. That could be caused by, like you said before, faulty wiring. It could be caused by, I mean, not even faulty
1: wiring, just one wire being too close to the next. Yeah. It could be caused by static electricity you know, and, and designers and manufacturers and, and testers make sure that there isn't interference between components and stuff like that. So it's not part of normal operations, but it's always recoverable at some point. So
0: what we're saying is temporary bit flips happen all the time. Yeah. So you get a blue screen of death on your laptop, your iPhone acts up, your TV stops working, so you unplug it and plug it back in. Or a candidate wins an election. <laughs> Not exactly, but you get it, right? So it's very possible and even likely that a single event upset caused by a cosmic ray made the bit flip. Wow. However, with a particularly powerful one, you might latch something that's major and your Prius or your Lexus might run away with you or your Airbus decides it's doing something it's not actually doing. And suddenly you're stuck to the ceiling of an A330 over the Indian Ocean scary scary but we we live and work with this it's part of yeah it is i yeah i I, it's amazing that you you got there before me i mean you were like damn cosmic ray but i knew you were the right person so (laughs) so let's talk about what they said the official cause of the incident and this is oh this is side speak the official cause of the incident was never determined except to say quote the in-flight upset occurred due to the combination of a design limitation in the flight control primary computer software of the Airbus. And what they're saying there is lack of comparative software.
1: Right. So if if that was an air condition for which it was designed, it would have maybe even reset a component in order to fix the latch. Right. Wow. And
0: wow. they went on
1: to say that, and a failure mode affecting one of the aircraft's ailerons. You know, whenever you say aileron, I think of the rue on the tail of the plane and it just makes me laugh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> rue, exactly. Yep. So the design limitation and they went on to say the design limitation meant that in a quote, "very rare and specific situation, multiple spikes in angle of attack data from one of the ailerons could result in the flight computer commanding the aircraft to pitch down." Yeah. That's talking out of the side of your face. Yeah.
1: No, that's just describing
0: the problem. That's describing the problem. That is not the cause. The, no. That is their, quote, official cause. <laughs> wow. Okay. <the> Airbus <laughs> never defined the, quote, specific situation. Right. Right? So they said, oh, it could be caused by a specific situation. But they never defined it. Because all they know is that whatever specific situation
1: it was flipped a bit. Yep. That's all they know. They don't know anything else. And a reset cleared it. And probably those boxes continue to still operate just fine today. I, I mean, I don't know what happened to the boxes, but it's very likely that they were tested and returned to service Yep, because those things are really expensive. Because, you know, I can see protecting against that kind of failure is a pretty big engineering effort of those systems. It really
0: is because you're going to have to add multiple redundant systems. Yeah. And those units are really expensive. So, I mean, you've got three Adaroos, but there's some software limitations, which is what they're saying is comparative, right? Yeah. But, they don't want to add extra stuff. It just makes the price go up.
1: Yeah, but keeping planes in the air is maybe worth adding extra stuff. Well, we learned you know, we learned <laughs> we learned later from the 737, didn't exactly. we? Right. That yeah. that you, you got there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So
0: Qantas quickly offered a settlement to anyone who was injured. Mm. Some people declined and they sued. However, Once the accident report was issued, the crew was found to be fully compliant. They did everything right. Qantas and Airbus were found to have acted in accordance with the law. And anyone who didn't take the initial settlement got nothing. It was dismissed. Wow. So basically, the summary is shit happened? That's it. And that's what the court said. Sorry, it was nobody's fault. So the Australian government, along with Airbus, studied the use of seatbelts in planes. What else could they do? They, they wanted to feel like they were doing something. <laughs> do something. <laughs> let's do something. Oh, let's study seatbelts. And they went as far to, as to study the difference between like a loose seatbelt and a tight seatbelt. Again, I didn't yeah. I didn't read that study. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Additionally, Airbus. Now, this is a good part. They issued guidance on what to do in case of an Ada roof failure. And they acor- incorporated it into their flight manuals and training within just a few months. Wow. So I worked for an aircraft manufacturer. And I know that aviation... Changes can take a long time. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, that that was lightning fast.
0: Yeah, when they work through governments, they can take a long time. When they work through existing equipment, they can take a long time. However, if a manufacturer like Airbus wants to change a procedure, they can unilaterally change it and issue an update immediately. Like Mm. they can make it happen in a week. Mm. They made it happen in a few months. And it's a good thing they did because in December of the same year, Qantas 71, an A330, but not the same A330, was flying through the same area, and
1: they had the same IR fault. I know. It this like, this. This sounds like the, the Point Nemo Bermuda Triangle yeah, cosmic yeah. ray location. They switched
0: off the affected Aderu in accordance with the new guidance. They uh, continued safely to their oh, destination. There you go. Did they have a pitch up or anything like that, or did they just get yeah. all the alarms? And They just got all the alarms, and they turned it off. Wow. And everything went back to normal. But, you know, this story, like all stories, have layers, and some have conspiracies, and this one is no different. So nearby to the site of where we had these incidents sits the Australian-U.S. Joint Naval Communication Station called Harold E. Holt. The station consists of 12 huge antennas arranged in an array, each more than 1,000 feet tall. They broadcast with over 1 megawatt of power. That's a million watts. Wow to put it in to put it in perspective the limit for radio and television broadcast is 100,000 watts. Yep. Yep. So maybe that could have caused a little interference maybe. Maybe. So yeah. Australian pilots pushed a petition to stop flights over the area. Mm. They pushed it on the government and the government was forced to address the theory and unsurprisingly they found no problem. Right, they denied it. <laughs> they said the broadcast station couldn't have been the cause. So we will never know, obviously, if it was a single event upset that was caused by a highly charged cosmic particle or it was caused by the most powerful radio broadcast station in the Southern Hemisphere.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Mm. I know it it, 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 starts, it feels a little fishy. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> single event upsets or the spontaneous flipping of a bit don't leave much for us to go on, no. like we
1: said. So the truth is we'll never know. Hmm. Hmm. Not much solace for the people who are injured severely on that plane. Severely. Yeah. Yeah, really not
0: much solace for them. But I will say that when you hear that the captain has now turned on the fastened seatbelt sign,
1: um, yeah, well, you should that, probably return to your seat. And it, that's what my experience on the ceiling taught me. Um, I am really good on seatbelt etiquette. And, and you know coming here into Denver... Uh, especially from the west and you can get a good mountain wave oh, going yeah.
0: the mountain wave is, can be wicked here
1: they can be wicked when they say you know the flight attendant's down and you might want to tighten your seatbelt oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah so we already talked about how Airbus how they their philosophy
0: views they, default eventually to the computer taking control and boeing doesn't do this but airbus does it you know it 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 brings up questions about like how much automation that we should have in our lives and i think one of the things it brings up you know everybody's seen on the internet the tesla that crashes into a dump truck or whatever yeah
1: because it's on autopilot right and the sensors have haven't seen something or they've seen something incorrectly so chelsea (laughs) sullenberger oh yeah sully Sullenberger.
0: He commented once the findings had, came, had come out. I personally, I have feelings about Ch- Chelsea Sullenberger. So I think he did what he needed to do in the situation. Absolutely. I think that he did exactly what he should have done, and I do not take away. But making him an expert on all Airbuses, I think, is maybe a
1: little far. He was just a captain who landed in the Hudson. Yeah. Did a nice job. Did an amazing job an of amazing job. managing the situation and flying the plane.
0: But that doesn't make him an expert. Right. <laughs> but anyway, he did comment on this and he said, basically, I'll paraphrase it. He basically said, at the end of the day, just like you said, when things go wrong, you want the pilot to be able to fly the damn airplane yep. instead of the computer. Yep. And the Airbus, unfortunately, does not agree with you. If everything goes dead in the Airbus, it is an emergency. I mean, it is like a no shit, you may die
1: if all the computers shut down. That's kind of a terrifying thing to think about. But at the same point, you know, there are millions of passenger miles flown perfectly safely in both families of aircraft. Daily, absolutely, and we have failures
0: on both sides. So yeah. I can't say that a philosophy is better than the other, right? Yeah. So in the case of Boeing, we had the seven thirty seven, right? Max, and it ran away, and it did, you know, and those well, the whole uncommanded trim it, stuff, right? Right, uncommanded trim, and they fought it for, yeah, like, like, like ten, fifteen minutes before right. a crash. And in this situation, you know, you have the pilots. Wanting to fight the airplane and just literally not being able to do anything. I think Airbus kind of back in the 80s when they designed this, they kind of saw the future and they said, yeah, this is where we're heading. But do you think they jumped the shark and went a little too far? In this case, I would actually say they did. Hmm. It's my opinion that once the aircraft has exited essentially the known flight envelope, it should just give the controls to the pilots. Yeah, right.
1: But that's not Airbus's philosophy. Mm -hmm. But you you have to... (laughs) You still have to focus on basic airmanship, and stuff breaks. You know, the company I work for, our CTO is very fond of saying things break all the time. And we fly these
0: Airbuses around with things that are broken, and they break every day. This is such a rare event. Yeah. I can't think of any other events where an Airbus completely, all its flight controls failed. So mm. Airbus it could be right. Mm-hmm. I can't think of one event, and I, I this is what I do in my spare time. <laughs> so...
1: That's the story. What do you think? Very good. I liked it. <laughs> and I never thought we'd be talking about latches and bit flips <laughs> on this podcast. But.
0: but this is the only thing we knew about the airplane. Wow. So back to the election. In this election. <laughs> in this election. So she got 4,096 more votes. The person who was in charge of all the elections in the city in Belgium that year, in Brussels, she got laughed at. So she brought this... To the General House Assembly, and she said, I need people to have trust in elections. Yeah. And they said, okay, yeah, well, everything was fine. Everything worked out, you know? Right. And she right. said, no, no, that's not good enough. We need to know what happened. hmm Engineers, software engineers, and hardware engineers went in, and they pulled all that data, and they found that bit flip, and they essentially said, hey, this isn't a hardware or software failure. In that case, basically, the only thing that it leaves us is...
1: A cosmic ray. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and more yet more evidence that um, when something seems awry, you validate. And it's part of the natural order of things. And the, the degree of automation is only going to increase over time. And, the micro, and
0: like we said, the circuits are going to get smaller and smaller and more prone, not yeah. less prone. Yeah. And there's really no way to shield. Oh, not against cosmic rays. There's no yeah. way to
1: shield against cosmic well, rays. And, and even if you could shield with some kind of metallic material, it would probably uh, make the weight budget just, just ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they've happened
0: all the time. So the next time your phone decides it's going to go crazy or... You get a blue screen of death or something crazy happens in your car. Why did that happen? Cosmic Ray. Maybe you're not crazy. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe the tinfoil will work. <laughs> 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 some big-ass tinfoil.
1: Um, yeah, <laughs> go a, ahead. A funny bit flip story. Go ahead. Um, I used to work with some folks who uh, worked on classic 1960s systems. And in this case, it was for a, for a bank. <laughs> this guy, uh, one of his good friends, uh, was the uh, maintenance rep for the mainframe. That they based all their stuff on, and whenever he wanted to go to lunch, he would clip the head off of a straight pin and drop it into the core memory array of the bank's computer. A bit would get stuck because oh, at no. the time it of was course. it was it was a mechanical yeah. little donut, right? Core memory, the bit bit would get stuck. Uh, the machine would trip um, and would call his friend to come out and fix it. Uh, he'd power cycle the memory, uh, clear the error, and they'd go have lunch. <laughs> That's the equivalent of like a pilot writing something
0: up that's not broken. Exactly. Just being like, oh, this broke. <laughs> <laughs> Have maintenance come out and fix it. I'm going to the beach. <laughs> that's so funny. That's so funny. But, but it also is a testament to how much it would take back in the 60s oh, yeah.
1: to flip a bit. And now, like I said, a thousand electrons. So when they moved that core memory array, um, uh, when they decommissioned that machine, they fo- found a pile of straight pins underneath the cabinet. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, so funny. <laughs>
0: so I'm going to read my sources: the official analysis and report from the Australian Safety Bureau and the Australian Aviation Authority. That's the main one I used. Radiolab.org and mm-hmm. their associated podcast. They taught me about binary, ah. and they
1: taught me a little bit about bit flips. And if I got anything wrong in my description, I bear binary code blame me. Sorry about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not a computer scientist. I kind of understand binary. I get it a little bit, but it's amazing that you can represent a big number with a very small number of essentially bits. Yeah, It's freaking genius. I read excerpts from the book called No Man's Land. It was written by Captain Sullivan. Mm. So there's the book, No Man's Land. I use ScienceDirect.com to read about single event upsets. Cool. I really had cool. to read. This yeah. was a lot for me. I was
1: going to say, this is, this is much more than the standard prep. Yes, I mean it is. This took
0: me a while. So <laughs> I read a research paper by a company called Micro Semi, and it was called Neutron Induced Single Event Upsets. Oh, yeah. Yep. I didn't understand all of it, but I understood some of it. And I used the Australian news publications to get the story, The Age, The Australian, The Guardian, and The Sydney Morning Herald.
1: Yeah, And that's what I used. Awesome. There you go. Yeah, and if you ever want to know a pile of information about single events, upsets in space, there's a bunch of uh, hardware manufacturers and uh, people who make processors for sil- satellites and spacecraft that, you know, this is just part of the way they you deal with the environment.
0: When I started to do research, I found um, tests. I found a database of where a company had taken all kinds of everything you can imagine motherboards and video cards and parts for computers and parts for cars and and they actually had it all categorized hmm. and what their lab did was examine for single event upsets put them at the business end of a particle accelerator that's what it is they put nice. it at the business end of a
1: of a essentially a ray gun <laughs> and they and they look at how t- many bit flips happen the ghostbusters were ahead of their time they could have made millions Predicting hardware failures. Just predicting hardware failures. That's it. Backpack linear accelerator. Well, and think about this: the most complex computer uh, managed, controlled device, chunk of hardware, whatever. At the end of the day, it's just a little bit of electricity.
0: That's it. That's it. And day by day, just a little less and a little less. Yep. So, anyway, Kent, we're going to do it before two years passes this time. Awesome. So I'll have you on again pretty soon. Excellent. All right. Cool. Thanks.